Welcome to Method to the Mathness podcast, a podcast about the universal truths in mathematics teaching and learning. We are your hosts, Nikki Lalonde and Jennifer Lenhart, and we are so glad you're here. Our hope and our vision and goal for this podcast is to have conversations that both affirm what we know to be true about teaching and learning mathematics and to inspire all of us to keep growing and learning. Well, Jen, can you believe it? Here we are at the end of 2019. It's wild. The end. The end of December. It's crazy. And, but the exciting thing for everyone out there listening is that we are thrilled to bring you the official highlight reel from this year. For this episode, we compiled some of the key insights from our guests throughout the year. And we're pulling it together in a way of celebrating the important work happening in the field of math education. Now, as you know, Method to the Mathness is a podcast about the universal truths in math teaching and learning. And in our very first episode, Marilyn Burns shares one of her universal truths. Let's take a listen. I guess the overarching universal truth would be that the purpose of teaching math is to help students think, reason, and solve problems that involve mathematics. And I think back to my early teaching, which was in 1962 when I started, I was more intent on getting kids skills, not building their understanding of what the mathematics is. So the universal truth is students need to make sense sense of what they're doing and persist until they do. So many important ideas about teaching and learning can really be anchored into that universal truth that students need to make sense of what they're doing, um, including making sense of who they are and who they are becoming, and persist in that endeavor. And I was thinking about the implications of that for math learning specifically, but also how that lays the foundation and sets the stage for life outside the classroom where it should always be the standard that you can persist to make sense of things. And if they don't make sense, then they don't require your compliance. So the social justice piece of lawmaking Mm. and engaging in society in ways that um, really are anchored in, in participating and being compliant with things that make sense to you um, and, and not in the things that don't. So thinking about the teacher's role in that in the classroom, let's hear from Rusty Bresser and Karen Holtzman on episode three, where they really talk about the role of the teacher and fostering sense-making with students. Well, I think part of it is giving all kids those opportunities to make those choices and to solve problems for themselves and, you know, thinking about what the teacher's role is and how much confidence we have in all kids to be able to figure things out Mm -hmm. and work through a problem and work together Mm -hmm. because a lot of times um, certain groups or certain types of kids don't get those opportunities. Um, So I I think that is really big and important and something to look at. I think what really stands out to me in from that clip is really considering the role, what's the teacher's role and what's the student's role. And it, and part of that role is what do we as educators, what do we as teachers really believe about how students learn and how our beliefs impact the way 
that we design and structure the opportunities to make sense, to reason, and to problem solve in the classroom. Absolutely. And I think the idea that um, creating spaces where students engage with problems and they decide how they solve them and they solve the problems for themselves is such a crucial part of the whole human development when we think about math education um, more broadly in the context of the classroom experience and the whole human beings that are walking through our rooms each day. And also, Jennifer, what sometimes flows out of our beliefs are these well-intentioned um, strategies and helpful helpfulness that we provide students in our classroom. But sometimes those helpful tips, tricks, hints, and strategies have some unintended consequences. And actually, I'm going to let Matt Larson expand on that in this next clip. For us as teachers to resist the urge to simply tell and instead engage with students, ask questions, assess what they understand and don't understand, ask some questions uh, to help them move forward and make some connections that maybe they're not making at that moment in time to keep, keep them engaged, keep them experiencing success and moving forward. I think one of the things we really have to be cautious about, and we all want to do it because we want our students to experience success and we don't want them to be frustrated, is when students ask a question because they're stuck or, or experience a little bit of frustration, our common response to that is to tell students exactly what to do. But the unintentional outcome of that, when I rush over and you, and you as a student raise your hand, I tell you exactly what to do, is I'm actually communicating to you, I have to tell you what to do because I don't think you're capable of doing it. And when we have that sort of interaction with students, even though we don't mean to, we're really chipping away at their identity, their how they see themselves as a learner of mathematics. If, if I have to do all the work for you and I communicate that message to you, then I as a student begin to believe that you don't think I'm capable of doing this. Hmm. And then I begin to not see myself as a student of mathematics and I begin to disengage and become disaffected from my experience. So again, it's it's every one of those little interactions in the classroom that really make a big difference. You know, when Matt shared about um, this idea that the teaching moves we make promote students feeling that they're capable um, as problem solvers, as mathematicians, and then being really mindful of the moves we make in conversation and in spaces that are masquerading as helpfulness and in actuality are conveying our beliefs, perhaps that we aren't even aware of in um, whether or not we think the person we're interacting with is capable, capable of learning, capable of doing the math, capable of engaging, whatever that may be. But that overhelpfulness is really one of the things that chips away at those identity pieces that we're trying to build. So Jennifer, you know, we just heard from Matt and you just um, really nicely and eloquently um, expanded on, on this idea of teachers who make us feel capable and the strategies that lend to that type of culture in a classroom. And I think what is so powerful is we know that there are power in words. We know that there is power in action. And yet Marilyn, in this next clip, really emphasizes the power actually in no words from the teacher and this idea of listening to our students and how much we can actually learn about what our students understand or don't understand 
but we also get this opportunity to learn about us as educators and where we might need to go next in a particular lesson or go next through in a particular concept and we're going, what's our next move to help this student understand and make sense of the math that's sitting before them. So there's power in words and actions, but there's also very much power in being still and really listening to what a student has to say. I, the challenge I took on that I learned somewhere was to not listen for the answer I hope to hear, but to listen for what the student is going to say and the answer the student gives. And then well, no matter if a, if I ask, a, I do ask questions where there is a right answer. There is a right answer to 99 plus 99 plus five. But once I get the answer, the, no matter if it's right or wrong, the question is, how did you figure that out? And I th- I think I've asked that question more times. It sort of mm-hmm. has a rhythm. It's almost poetic to me. How did you figure that out? And now I find in the classroom, when the kids give an answer, they don't wait for me to answer that question. They say, because, or I figured it out, and this is what I did. It becomes very natural. So it's really, it's such a shift in my thinking and for the whole class that I'm curious about how they figured it out. I want to hear about it. And very often in the process of explaining their thinking, kids say, oh, no, 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 that's, oh, wait, 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 and they change their answer. So in Ms. Burns' class, you can change your answer anytime you want, as long as you can explain their thinking, because my job to be a good math teacher is to understand how you think. And that becomes the mantra Mm -hmm. for me, and it becomes the culture of the classroom. I can all I can listen to Marilyn, you know, over and over again. But the couple of things stood out to me in what we just heard. And it's this idea that she developed this rhythm in her classroom. And it and then she says it was almost poetic. And what that says to me is there was an environment and a culture in that classroom and a format in which she listened to students and responded to students that was um, consistent. And we know consistency really helps our students in the classrooms, but then it was poetic. And that poetic makes me think of, it was also creative. It was also out of the box and, and, and innovative. Whatever was happening in that classroom can also be characterized by words like that. So there's this direction, right? This direction, this structure that we know is critical. And yet we've got this poetic feel and flow to it as well. And and, and that really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Just listening to you talk reminded me of a class I took um, back when I was doing my teacher preparation work at the University of Oregon, and the professor started the first day of class by asking us, what is teaching? And then he had us journal. And then his second question was, what is good teaching? And he Mm. had us journal. And then his third question is, what is beautiful teaching? And Um. I just remember thinking, whoa, whoa, like next level analysis of what's going on in the classroom. And with a mathematics background, it was freedom to think about the beauty of this work with students and that just listening to you really hone in on that notion of creativity and poetry and rhythm and like just hailed back to those conversations about what is beautiful teaching. Mm, I love that. I love that. Beautiful teaching brings the human side of it. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's sort of this idea of like the joy and um, so many of the other feelings. So when I think poetry, I think about things that get me in my feels 
And when I think yeah. mathematics, I think about things that get me in my head and what Marilyn's connecting are those two pieces because they mathematics is a whole human experience um, rather than just something we do with our heads and a pencil. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliantly said. You know, Nikki, when Jennifer Lemp was on episode two, she shared some really interesting strategies related to math workshop. And I think often you could you could consider strategies or workshop structure. We hear the word structure and maybe we conceive of something that's rigid or um, almost like the framework for a building or something that is just sort of cold and there for a purpose and whatever. But Jennifer's conception of math workshop as a structure that sets us free to be more attentive listeners is really beautiful. So let's listen in. We need to be responsive to the students and we need to let the students, their strategies, their thinking, their questions, their misconceptions really help to drive, you know, each day after. You know, when Jennifer is talking about being responsive to the students and letting their strategies and their thinking um, surface, it reminded me of so many of the stories we heard from our guests. And as many of you know, we kick off our episodes with a chance for our guests to share some of their math story with us. And one of those pieces that I have in such an acute memory of was listening to LaVeda Gray share part of her story as a math student, which really uh, is sort of embodies the experience that Jennifer Lemp was describing that teachers are working to create. Let's listen in. I think it's important that, and my teachers didn't, many of them didn't look like me. Um, growing up between kindergarten through eighth grade, I had two African-American teachers. And so that is huge in terms and thinking about like populations of schools today where I was right. able to be proud of my background, um, proud of who I was and also taught like, hey, this is who you are. And this is that doesn't mean just because you are from the neighborhood that I was from or the household I was from, that that had anything to do with what you were capable of doing or learning. And so our teachers really pushed us. Um, I mean, I was, you know, pushed into higher mathematics, even though I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Another major theme that we picked up on in a lot of these episodes was this idea of community and belonging and identity and this idea of working in isolation versus community. So we're going to hear a couple of clips about that, but we're going to start off um, from episode three with Rusty and Karen and this idea of math also being a social activity and how do we normally think about math and doing math and being involved with math? Do we always think about it in, in, as being a part of a community? Or is it something that when we say those words, we think about doing it in isolation? So let's hear from Rusty and Karen. Yeah. And I think even just like defining math as a social activity. Yeah. A lot of times <clears throat> traditionally you think of you do math in isolation at your desk by yourself. Um, but really, the interesting ideas come from working together and talking and listening to each other. So, You know, what stands out to me about that little clip is the notion that really interesting ideas come from working together. And it makes me wonder if we could say universally that we engage in mathematics and mathematics education for the outcome of generating really interesting ideas. because. We could say that our instructional decisions say something about our beliefs mm -hmm. 
And I think if we believe that we're interested in the ideas of others, our instruction reflects that. But if we believe that executing algorithms or getting right answers is what mathematics is, or that the purpose of mathematics is that, then our instructional decisions reflect that as well. Jen, that really made me think of a couple of things as you were just sharing and expanding. So if collaboration generates some really interesting ideas, then the opposite of that, and oftentimes the way that my experience was in math uh, as a math learner or um, what have you was this, this doing math in isolation. And, and when I think about doing math in isolation, all I'm trying to do is like maybe um, prove the idea of someone else. Right. So that, that kind of dichotomy or whatever came to me as you were sharing. Absolutely. You know, Dr. Mims also shared his experience about learning how to work collaboratively in college. Let's listen back to that clip. So the research behind that is Signithia Fordham's research that, you know, she calls racelessness. What we did was to address those two issues, we said, one, we're going to pre-teach them the theorems and the postulates and teach them how to work together in groups. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to give them an opportunity to hone those skills of working collaboratively in groups, make the classes more comfortable for the students by clustering them in the same geometry honor section. So we created a critical mass of about 40 percent of geometry honor section would be calculus project students. Uh, We didn't have entire sections. We just created a critical mass. And literally in one year, we would have 60 to 70 percent withdraw to geometry standard. We actually had zero students, not one student wanted to withdraw. And we actually had students who overrode the recommendation to take geometry standard, to take geometry honors, just so that they could be with their friends who they were with during the summer, during the pre-teaching. After being reminded and re-listening to what Dr. Mims just shared, I wonder what it would be like to step back and really observe the you know students that I come in contact with or as a teacher in a classroom every single day. If I were to take a couple of days and really observe what's naturally happening out there and use that as input data to what I might need to do next to foster the type of learning environment that would be most beneficial to the students sitting in front of me. Yes. And I think about that notion of um, honing the skills. He says, hone the skills of working collaboratively in groups. Describing that as a skill set you can learn as opposed to sort of elusive magic, that that's a skill set we can teach. So at any grade level, at any moment in the year, when we notice our students are not working collaboratively, we can then make decisions that foster the development of those skills um, rather than saying something that might sound like, well, fifth period just doesn't work well together. So there's, you know, there, there are things we can do. And it reminds me of a strategy Jennifer Lemp was sharing about when she was talking about making the move to math workshop and really making some instructional shifts to build that collaborative work environment. So if we ascribe to the belief that collaboration is a critical feature of learning at all, and especially learning in mathematics, I think it's safe then to reach outside the classroom and say the implications for collaboration beyond the classroom are profound and beautiful. The implications for teaching in the classroom are profound and beautiful and uniting, unifying. 
Yes, unifying, right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea that um, you create the expectation in school, either that you do this alone, or you get to be and do this with other people, and that we're part of some community, and that connectedness, bringing people together and unifying. Yeah, it's a great word for that, Nikki. So Nikki, you said this this idea about unifying and things beyond the classroom. Do you remember that session that we got to hear with Dr. Chris Childs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was after uh, we heard him speak somewhere and uh, we were just really enthralled and fascinated with some of the things he shared. Yeah. So we swooped in for a conversation and he, um, and of course recorded it like you do when you're us. And <laughs> had the opportunity to engage him in some dialogue around the choices he made for what to include in that presentation, including a really powerful quote. Let's hear that clip. Okay. So I'm going to pull this quote. We just heard you share some insights and you shared a quote or a partial quote, teach math so people stop hating each other. And I would really like to dive into a little more what that means for you, why it resonates with you. Of all the quotes and all the land to pull for a 60-minute presentation, that one made the cut. How come? First, I'm going to give credit to Dr. Masha Wynn. That's why I adapted that quote from. It resonates because we were always taught math is a bunch of formulas, a bunch of numbers. You got to get an answer. We never were taught how mathematics make connections and make sense. And when we see mathematics makes connections and then start to make sense, people can start seeing they're less different and they're more alike. Mm -hmm. And in the presentation you were referring to, I talk about the origins of the world. I talk about the origins of mathematics, but then also I think about the origins of kids. Like at, his, at every kid's basis, they're literally all the same when a baby is born. Aside from the amount of melanin in their skin tone, they're the same. And it's getting people to understand when we see that we're one in the same, we change how we treat each other. You know, in that conversation with Dr. Childs, one of the interesting things that we heard over and over again was the ways that we intentionally choose an avenue for mathematics learning and education, sort of with an agenda, a political agenda often, and um, pretending like the agendas aren't there is part of what leads to the perpetuation of systemic injustice. And so being able to acknowledge that one of the agendas of working in isolation or of analyzing statistics that, you know, highlight difference or, you know, it's not that they don't exist. It's a, it's a choice about how much volume certain, like how loud we play that track in a way. Mm. compared to the ideas that we can use mathematics to bring people together and to solve problems rather than to stratify people and pull them apart. Well, and I think that's exactly the spirit and the sentiment in which Dr. Tanya Clark in episode four talks about the I'm Woke project that she developed in Georgia. And this idea of let's, let's think of a cause, let's think of an issue Let's sit down, let's talk about it, let's acknowledge the different viewpoints, and then let's really pull in the data and the information that can help us come to some sort of a resolution or a solution. And all of that together, it has a unifying effect. And I think what it does is it brings that relevance and that passion to the classroom as well. So let's 
take a moment and let's listen to what Dr. Tanya Clark has to say about her thought process um, around the developing the I'm Woke project. But what is it that really helps us to change the issue? It's it's understanding it. It's um, you know thinking through it. It's sitting down and 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 problem solving to determine what are some of the things we actually can do. Seeing the different viewpoints. And so when when the when the idea came to me about the Unwoke project, I said not only this could not only could this be you know something that we can do to support math, but this is something that that you know if we pull it together, we can really help our community Absolutely. to think through things intelligently, not just emotionally. Listening to Dr. Clark talk about the different viewpoints and how to integrate that into mathematics learning that's meaningful to students but also powerful to the community reminds me of several comments and excerpts from conversations that we've had over 2000, you know, throughout 2019. Um, And I just, they speak for themselves. So let's just listen to a few. We have Dr. Childs, Dr. Clark, and Nicole Bridge. Every child comes into the classroom with some rich background. I mean, a rich natural background. Build upon that. Embed the content within that. So I, I think sometimes we start the wrong way. We start with the math and then want to find the issue. Start with the issue that, that you think students and teachers will be passionate about and then back up to how can I build in the math? How can I bring it, build in the historical background? How does, how, where does the, the, um, the, the language arts, the literature, how does that tie in to support the students with, with being able to research, read, write about what they're finding? Uh, and even the, as the more we talked about it, we even found the scientific you know, relevance in it because we started talking about when we started talking about implicit versus explicit bias and how that ties into the way that the, that people react to each other, including police officers and the, the science behind how the, your perception, it just, I mean, we just were, we were able to back up and tie you know, everything together. So don't start with the, the, the smaller content, start with the larger issue. Part of a, a good first step is recognizing that those identities exist and that Hmm. those identities impact the way that we move through the world. And it seems a basic step, but what what we know to be true is that uh, whiteness, and when I'm saying whiteness, I'm talking about, certainly I'm talking about race, but I'm also talking about um, ways that align with the dominant cultural ways of being. So in the United States, we're talking about um, white, male, cisgender, heterosexual, Christian, um, English speaking. So when you align with those ways, you, you don't see those identities. So I'm less aware of my whiteness because I walk in spaces where it's affirmed and mirrored back to me all the time. And so because of that, I am often unaware of the ways that, that, that impacts the assumptions that I have and the narratives that I create about the world around me. So I think a really good first step is just naming it and recognizing it and stepping back to say, okay, so how does my experience, because I can only know my own experience, how does my experience inform the assumptions that I'm bringing to this situation? And how are those assumptions impacting the way that I'm I'm making decisions and acting in this situation? So this notion of recognizing and honoring the students in our classroom for who they are in totality 
That means their background. That means the color of their skin. That means any um, experiences that they are bringing to the classroom is really critical. And what I really appreciated about what Nicole shared was like, what's that first step that I can do as an educator to start to connect to that? And the beauty of, right, of her, the first step that Nicole identified was recognizing that these identities exist in the classroom and that they have an impact on the way we move through the world. So whether that, and I took that to myself, like I need to identify who I am and that impacts the way I move through the world, all of my background, all of my experiences, and then partner that up with the experiences and backgrounds and identities in the, in my classroom. Once I acknowledge that, then I need to be making some decisions and implore some strategies. But the first step is really identifying, acknowledging, and recognizing that. Mm-hmm. And I think especially the idea that those components and aspects of who we are bring with them a set of assumptions that I make about yeah. a situation or about a student, even about my colleagues when I think about lunchroom conversations, about my principal. Um, and there's just so much when you start to say, what is it that I'm assuming here? And we take those yeah. assumptions, we sort of interpret them in our internal narratives as facts rather than assumptions. And, and then we operate out of that space. You operate out of your assuming space based on the categories you occupy. Um, Mm. And that has an impact to the people around you. And I think there's a lot of value in analyzing the impact of those things from a judgment free space to say, okay, well, I'm, what I'm interested in here is the impact of my identity on yours. So who am I in the classroom and what's the impact of that on who you get to be in the classroom? Um, Because I think we have a shared responsibility in a classroom, in any community to ensure that my identity doesn't trample yours um, and that yours doesn't trample mine. Absolutely. I mean, right there, you've, you've, you've actually said a couple tweetable moments right there, Jennifer. And I think um, I I really want to, I really want to pause and give everyone an opportunity that's listening to think and reflect and move through those thoughts of what are my experiences and assumptions and what, what are they and what impact are they having on other people and what impact are they having on decisions that I make in the way that I move through the world? I mean, I just think that's really important for all of us to pause, think and reflect on that. Mm -hmm. And that, Reflection is continuous, right? It's cyclical. So I may move through a season where something isn't necessarily oozing out of my assumptions or my identity in a way, and then I'm in a new space and it does have a different impact on different people because the nature of those relationships is organic. And so having that constantly reflective stance, I think is perhaps one of the ways that we'll find that connection that we're looking for, the things that bring us together. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So let's sort of make a shift here. 
we've been talking a lot about who we are as educators, who the students are in front of us and their identities. And I want us to zoom out and think about this from a larger perspective, from a more systematic or system-wide perspective. And someone that is going to help us do that from episode seven is Dr. Adrian Mims. Um, So let's take a listen to what he has to say. There was uh, research conducted by the Office of Civil Rights under the Department of Education. Uh, They released a report about three, four years ago, and less than half of the high schools in the country even offer calculus. We know where the schools are that don't really offer it. Unfortunately, your zip code does determine your access and your opportunity. Too many of those high schools that don't offer calculus uh, are in some urban areas, some rural areas, and in some suburban areas. But uh, the most of the students who attend those schools are students of color, are low-income students. You have students who are in West Virginia, you know, in Appalachia areas, rural areas that don't have access either. So it's pervasive throughout the country, and it's it's a big deal. But then you have students who, you know, their families have the financial means they can sign them up for Russian math. They can sign them up for all of these different STEM programs during the summer. And a lot of the programs that they run during the summer around STEM, you usually have to pay for those. They have a handful of scholarships, but there's nothing anywhere close that can meet the need that exists. So Dr. Mims offers us this nationwide perspective on access to different mathematics and science learning opportunities, and there are such deep implications for that. And if we then take that idea of what's going on nationwide, what's trend, what are the trends, what's happening, and we look within our own school or across a school campus, maybe even a district, um, Anthony Colonino on episode five really challenges us to look at this overall system school-wide and the impact that has for students. So when students are trying to work towards having a growth mindset specifically is what um, Anthony is sharing about, how can we achieve that when we're having multiple and varied messages from different teachers? So let's listen into his perspective. While there is nuance, I think the foundational piece is the messages have to be, I'm here, we're here to learn, Sometimes the work is going to be challenging. I'm expecting you to make make mistakes. We're going to be mistake tolerant, and we're going to identify the mistakes and ultimately learn from those mistakes, no matter how long it takes. Because we know in neuroscience, when we make mistakes, those bonds and messages that we create from those mistakes help the learning last and hold on to our learning. So I think that overall foundational piece and from that, people ask me often, like, how do we do it? How do we do mindset? And I say, like I said earlier, get everybody on the same page. So if you're in high school and you go to a science class, a math class, an English class, social studies class, whatever class, if the teachers have that same foundational language, belief system, and culture around learning and growth, more kids will learn. But they might not get it in social studies, but they'll hear it again in math and they'll hear it again in science And they're more likely to get it if they hear those messages consistently across content areas, grade levels, classrooms. 
Right. And you're, you know, you're describing not having cultures that compete with one another. And so it can be really confusing space for students to navigate. What do I believe about learning when the adults around me say really different things about learning? That is very so true. Very, very how true. How could I possibly sort out what is real and true about what my brain is working on when my math teacher says that we learn from mistakes and my English teacher marked up my paper in a way that made me feel like I'll never learn this? So... There's no doubt that over the many, 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 many decades, we've made incredible progress and strides when it comes to education and it, com- it comes to help giving our students the best opportunities. And we also know we have these areas of growth that we can expand in and we can learn more. And we know that, that there's still some changes to be made from you know, the, the big system, if you will, of education down to the, the site level. And we also know that there's some changes and shifts that we can make in the classroom. And what I really appreciate about this next clip from episode two is Jennifer Limp gives us a permission slip to not wait until it's perfect, to not wait until we've practiced a strategy over and over again, but she just gives us permission to start, to give it a try, see what happens, and then do it again the next day based on what you learned about the students in your classroom. And I got to tell you, we've listened and, and had amazing conversations with so many people in 2019. And this idea of just start, just try it, don't be paralyzed, really speaks to me in so many different facets and areas of my life. So let's hear what Jennifer Lemp has to say. Sure. I couldn't agree more with that idea. We, we, we never should wait until we think that it's the perfect time or that we have it all down perfect. I, I don't know if I ever would have written the book or if I'd be talking about it if, if that had been the case, because I don't know that I've reached perfect at all mm-hmm. when it comes to math workshop. I feel that every day in every class, you know, th- there are years that I feel like math workshop can take off a little bit faster than in other years. There are groups of students who possibly haven't been exposed to as, as much of a math workshop model in the past that I need to spend a little bit more time on the routines and the procedures. Really, it's about going slow to go fast. Hmm. Think about, reflect on how is your current practices, how do those current practices already relate to math workshop? What pieces are there? What pieces do you already feel that you just want to tweak a little bit? Hmm. What is something that you want to try next? Find those connections and realize that there are so many great things that you're already doing in your classroom. Keep doing those and tweak one or two things that would allow you more flexibility to reach student needs, that would allow students to see math in a a more exciting light. But recognize that starting math workshop isn't throwing away all of your old practices Mm. and starting anew. It's about those connections to what's working and then being open to learning just like we would want all students to be and, and trying a few new things. So Jennifer Lemp says starting math workshop isn't throwing away all of your old practices and starting it new, which reminds me of the work Rochelle Gutierrez shares about rehumanizing mathematics. And she talks about the idea that um, the there's something about the return to the humanity or like the return to best practice or incorporating something new rather than inventing from scratch or, um, but there's something inherent. And Jennifer Lemp's idea around math workshop is similar in that 
there's something about sense making and pattern finding and letting students think and reason and make sense that we can return to um, by by adopting some of those practices. I just appreciate a lot the idea that there's sort of the return to what makes a lot of good sense. So when it comes to making that change, it requires a growth mindset. And Jennifer, one of my favorite questions that you asked in 2019 to one of our guests was a simple question, but I also think it's a simple question that resulted in a very powerful response. And that question was, well, let's listen to it. So Anthony, complete this sentence for us. Growth mindset is blank and it is not blank. Growth mindset is concerned with learning and growth over time. It is not the letter grader judgment of a product Hmm. or test. Anthony just calls us out a little bit and says growth mindset is concerned with learning. It's concerned with learning. So when we talk about our own approach to our own line of work, whatever that is, whether you're in professional development, in the classroom, teacher leader, district level, statewide decision maker, parent at home, neighbor to neighbor, whatever that is, like growth mindset is just concerned with learning and learning in community that we heard from so many guests and learning about ourselves and learning about those around us and the ways that we craft those connections and interactions is concerned with learning. So beautiful. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. And it sets, it really can set the stage and environment and culture for some powerful learning to take place. Absolutely. You know, Nikki, I feel like you and I could sit here and thumb through these episodes and re-listen to clip after clip after clip. They were inspiring conversations when we had them. They're inspiring to go back and listen to. I feel like there are parts that jump out that I don't even remember hearing the first time. It's been so incredible. And we want to bookend this episode with a comment about stories because we opened each of our episodes with a guest sharing their math story. So let's hear Dr. Child share his perspective. The beauty of math is that it it tells the story of everything around us, but we have to let other people tell that story. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed a little sneak peek back into the episodes from 2019 and that you are feeling inspired, challenged, and motivated to find your 10%, as Matt would say. I know I speak for Jennifer too. We are so thankful for the time you've spent with us this year, and we are excited to be with you in 2020. Catch you after the new year. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe, download, and review wherever you find your podcasts to stay up to date with the latest episodes from Method to the Mathness. Your comments and reviews mean a lot to us. So share with us what you think and who you would like to hear from. Come find us on Twitter at Jennifer L. Math and at Nikki underscore Math Soul. That's N-I-K-K-I underscore Math, M-A-T-H-S-O-L. And use the hashtag Method to Mathness. That's Method, the number two, Mathness. Thanks for listening. And until we hear from you next time, stay inspired. Stay inspired.